Friends, let us hear these words from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 49 through 56. Listen now for the word of God for you. And Jesus said, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it was already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under to see it completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three they will be divided. Father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it is going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is with great honor that I stand in this pulpit today, a pulpit that has been a place of proclamations of messages of social justice from the time of the Reverend Henry Sloan Coffin to our present moment. And it was also a joy to have probably the best introduction I've ever gotten before preaching. <laughs> and for the chance to champion ice cream as the greatest dessert. I bring with me this morning the greetings of the staff and membership of Yanhus Presbyterian Church, some of whom are with us this morning, and the greetings of nearly 30,000 annual food and housing insecure guests of the Urban Outreach Center, the homeless services nonprofit that began at Yanhus Church nearly 30 years ago and of which Madison Avenue has been a partner for many of those years. We've been particularly grateful to share your space on Tuesday evenings for the past several months, and for a few more months yet to come, for both worship and our Tuesday community dinner, which serves nearly 150 hungry New Yorkers a healthy meal each week in your parish hall, as we complete renovations on a new church home that will carry the Urban Outreach Center and Yonhus Church into the next hundred plus years of its history. I'd like to start off this morning with a question. Does anybody here remember that old hymn by Charles Wesley, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild? Couple of hands. Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild, it goes. Look upon a little child, pity my simplicity, Suffer me to come to thee. The next verse continues, Put thy hand upon my head. Let me in thy arms be stayed. Let me lean upon thy breast. Lull me, lull me, Lord, to rest. Now, I'm not saying that John Wesley got Jesus wrong in this old song. 
But it's not exactly the Jesus that we see and hear in this particular text, is it? I began to draft our morning sermon a few months ago when Jenny invited me to be with you all. On that morning, one of the headlines in the Times spoke of the continued policy of family separation on our southern border. Twitter in the days that followed echoed children dying in these camps, separated from their parents. In the weeks that followed, the news was littered with more disruption, murmurs of war, mass shootings, a mounting economic downturn. I write again the words of Jesus from our passage, an explosive Jesus, a Jesus whose words were unsettling in an already unsettling time in our collective life. These words, do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. I sat quiet in those words of Jesus, physically, viscerally, mournfully in those words of Jesus. Words that a near unrecognizable Jesus and explosive Jesus spoke as an indictment of the harm that was being wielded by the power of the Roman imperial governance in his homeland. Words that Jesus spoke to signal the kind of societal and political and religious reordering that was going to be required to live out the kingdom that he was calling the disciples and the gathered crowds into. Jesus spoke these words in a tumultuous time. He spoke these words to signal the desperate need to shake up the status quo. He spoke these words because the ways that people had been behaving, the way they'd been lulled by force or by helplessness, the complacent ways in the face of injustice that had become the normal way of operating were no longer acceptable in the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus continues to speak these same words to our own tumultuous times. He signals our need to shake up the status quo. He speaks these words, these harsh words, family against family, to signal the dire need to action, perhaps radical action, and to indict our feelings of helplessness against evils that are carried out in our name and that are continued by our insouciance. In our passage this morning, one of the most intimidating bits of texts in the Gospels, Jesus provides a stern rebuke of our times, naming that God demands more of us, that God subverts the kind of violence that is being wielded in our name, that God is fundamentally in the business of reordering the structures of our world that hold people down. In Luke's Gospel here, Jesus seems a world away from the long-sung hymn of our faith, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's angry. He's uncouth. There's not a filter of politeness, of decency to mask his intentions here. This message is not a message that goes down easily. This is one of those texts that when it comes around in the lectionary, many preachers will find it a perfectly good week to look to whatever the epistle might have to offer. 
Or perhaps the psalm offers a wonderfully delightful message for those who will gather on an August Sunday morning. Who wants to talk about Jesus, predicting that to really follow him, it might set you against the people that you love? Who wants to face their Savior naming them as a hypocrite? Who wants to imagine that the response, that God's opinion, might be not gentle or mild? I don't. If you ask me, we already have plenty of disruption and anger and hate that fills the news cycle seemingly every day. And yet, it is what we have from the Gospels this morning. Jesus in a tumult, neither meek nor mild, angry to the point of making us uncomfortable. A Jesus who is not afraid to call things like he sees them. Perhaps that was because he was slowly and intentionally making his way to his death. And he knew he had already told the disciples, who still hadn't quite understood it yet, that his death would not be one of old age or peaceful circumstance. Rather, he was going to be killed, because Jesus, as the Christ, as God's love, lived out among the poor on the margins of an empire, was a threat to the powers that be, both national and religious, a prophet and a preacher whose words often comforted those who were afflicted and afflicted those who were comfortable. The problem Jesus had, and the problem that we so often have today, was that the comfortable ones, his words and actions so often afflicted, were the ones holding all the power. That often we ourselves are the comfortable ones so afflicted by the truth that Jesus speaks. Here's how another preacher puts it. What is good news to some people sounds like judgment to others because Jesus' gospel challenges and critiques power and wealth and religious rules and tradition. So Jesus continues on. His path turned toward Jerusalem, and Jesus knew full well that some of the people at the end of that journey, particularly as he reached the center of Roman imperial power in the region, would do whatever it took to resist his message, to prevent the people from gathering behind this Jesus movement ideology. Jesus was becoming increasingly aware that the powers that be would not hesitate to kill the messenger. At this particular point along his journey, making a push toward Jerusalem, it is not surprising that Jesus' tone was booming. He had to make sure that the disciples understood this one point. It was crucial. Jesus wasn't simply lashing out because, as we know, the disciples have a hard time getting simple, crucial points. But because they weren't even fully seeing that this challenging of the status quo had been happening all along. The restructuring of the way things are that Jesus intimates had begun years before. 
Can't I first go back home to bury my father before I follow you? A potential disciple asks him. Let the dead bury the dead, Jesus says. When Jesus yelled to those first Galilean fishermen on their boats, follow me and from now on you will be fishers of people, they literally dropped everything, their nets, their homes, and followed. That certainly created a division in their families. We all remember Jesus as a boy not even yet 13, lingering behind with the leaders in the temple, freaking out his parents when they realized that he was not just hanging around behind them with the other kids. When Mary asks him, as I think any parents in this audience would relate to, a little relieved, maybe a little annoyed, why have you been so reckless? Why did he do something so seemingly irresponsible? The young Jesus echoes his later words from our own passage, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Even in the earliest stories we have of Jesus, he's already beginning to outline this reordering of what constitutes family, of what constitutes the status quo. But even if you as a disciple were able to keep those family relationships intact, when you became a follower of Jesus, whether you anticipated it or not, you were immediately thrust into conflict with the powers that be. Following Jesus required you to interrogate questions of love of both neighbor and enemy, about generosity and forgiveness, about justice and mercy, about law and truth. And when you were asking those kinds of questions, it forced you to start asking questions about the way the economic and political systems had been structured, which forced you to question why some folks had so much, but others had so little. As much as being a disciple of Jesus was not a choice that your mom and dad might understand, it was also not a choice that the powerful and politically connected would understand either. I'm reminded of a story that I once heard about Will Willimon, a prolific preacher, a Methodist bishop, and for many years, the chaplain of Duke University. He got a phone call from a dad of a graduating student. The father called Willimon's office and screamed over the phone, I hold you personally responsible for this, Will. The father was angry because his otherwise career-bound child had decided in the dad's view to, quote, throw it all away and go do mission work in some foreign country with the Presbyterian Church. Isn't that absurd, the father yelled. She has a degree from Duke University and she is going off to dig ditches. I hold you responsible for this. Willimon paused. And then he asked this irate father, why me? You're the one who filled her head with all this religious stuff, the father yelled. Willimon paused again. Sir, Weren't you the one that had her baptized? Well, well, yes, the father murmured. And, and you who took her to Sunday school? 
Well, well, yes. And you who sent her on those youth group service projects to the soup kitchen, yes, and what the heck does that have to do with anything? Replied the father, increasingly irate. Sir, Willimon concluded, you are the reason she is throwing it all the way. You introduced her to Jesus, not me. But, hesitated the father, all we wanted was a Presbyterian. <laughs> Willimon replied, I'm sorry, sir. You messed up. You've gone and made a disciple. Willimon's experience with that father does highlight a serious tension. A truth that Jesus lifted up with his anger that day. Sometimes the way that we can most authentically follow Jesus is by throwing away the expectations that have been made for us or the limits that we place on our own ability to love. This student was saying no to her father's conception of what following Jesus meant. Her family felt like she was leaving them behind, but what she was trying to do was experience God alive in what most have felt to her like a clear call to action and love. Discipleship can sometimes be a painful truth to understand. I'm reminded in all of this of the sacrament of baptism. And bear with me now, if that seems like a leap. Jesus' words for us this morning of fire and division, words of tumult, seem far away from our lived experience of a gathered family presenting a baby to a congregation asking that they help raise that child in the faith of Jesus. Jesus' words in our passage, I have a baptism with which to be baptized and what stress I am under to see it completed possess what feels like a different kind of urgency, a more fundamental rocking of our depths than we have grown used to. The truth is that we don't often think about our baptism following a line where Jesus says, I came to bring fire to the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. What we would do well to reclaim. As Jesus tries so forcefully to make his point here, to the disciples and to us is that our baptisms mark a fundamental break with the reality that we knew before. Our baptism is a sign and acknowledgement of a deep truth. You don't ultimately belong to your parents. You don't ultimately belong to your children. You don't ultimately belong to your partner or spouse. You don't ultimately belong to your genetic or chosen family tree. Instead, in your baptism, you and the community of faith around you name the reality that you ultimately and only belong to God. I think it was this realization that Jesus was attempting to get through to the disciples as they journeyed toward their last days together. That the disruption of the status quo that God was carrying out, this new family that God was gathering together in Jesus, sustained by the Spirit, the very disruptive truth of the kingdom was the center of the message all along. 
what we're hearing in these fiery words from Jesus. An understanding that was beginning to form for him even in his teenage years was that God had created a much wider circle of what family means than our narrow definition. With Jesus' words, neither meek nor mild, he hoped to shock us into expanding our circles of love wider and wider. Because our baptism not only claims and seals us as God's own, but calls us into the life and work of the whole family of those who gather in God's name, not simply the families into which we were born. And maybe, perhaps often, and especially after long committee meetings, not even the family we would necessarily choose. No. What is announced at the moment of your baptism is that God in Christ has given you a new family, a coalition of humans across generations, a family bound by the call of Jesus on their lives. Jesus knew this truth would not be an easy one, but it would be a liberative one. The truth was what caused him to be so lamenting that day. That same tension should exist for all those who try and follow Jesus. That truth can't be made more palatable. It's not meek. It's not mild. But it's exactly what this radical disruption in our understanding, this redefining of to whom we belong, this massive expansion of those we were called to name as family, that sends us off on Jesus' true calling for our lives. Because when we learn to love in the expansive way that Jesus does, not bound by our feelings of hopelessness at the chaos of our world, or contained by the limits that the status quo circumscribes on who or how or when we are able to love, we are able to view, perhaps for the first time in a while, the full family of God that marks this journey toward justice and peace alongside us. Amen.